The year 1989 was an auspicious year, a transformative year in my life. That year, I married my wife, Mary, in the Catholic Church, left my job in journalism, started working in human services, moved from Milwaukee to Appleton, and discovered the Unitarian Universalist faith. At the age of 24, with youthful exuberance, I was ecstatic to find this faith. You mean you don't have to be certain about Christianity or God in general, and you can still be a good person? My first Appleton job, where my wife and I ran a group home for a Christian nonprofit organization, was a great place to post my Unitarian Universalist principles. This is so obvious, I thought. I'm sure this is actually what everyone believes. Shortly afterward, a coworker scolded me for so boldly posting my religious beliefs on the refrigerator in the kitchen of the group home. Well, apparently this isn't for everyone, I guess. I was spreading the good news of inherent worth and dignity, acceptance, and the flaming chalice, but I forgot for a second that my cool new belief system wasn't just right for everyone. While inclusivity got my attention, it has more often been the risky, even radical side of Unitarian Universalism that has kept me involved for 32 years. The radically inclusive spirit of our human justice-seeking mission, captured in the rich history of our flaming chalice, has seeped, sometimes overflowed, into my daily life. Unlike Jan Hus, the Roman Catholic leader branded a heretic, whom we will learn more about soon, my active, rapid embrace of our faith didn't put me at risk of being burned at the stake. But it has offered a glowing light of comfort and a spiritual exhortation to stand out, to stand up, to say something, to listen to previously muffled voices, and to seek to make a difference in big ways or small. One of the things that initially struck me and still holds the day is our first principle, the inherent worth and dignity of every person. As I immersed myself more and more in the fellowship and early on became a worship leader, we called it something else back then, I began taking risks to stand up for inclusion because I was emboldened by Unitarian Universalism. Long before there was marriage equality, our fellowship initiated the Welcoming Congregation Program. We brought a guest speaker who shared his experience as a man with HIV, and we presented a Sunday morning program proudly proclaiming that love is love. Years later, Longtime fellowship member Chester Banky thanked me for my part in that, but it seemed so natural. It was simply who we Unitarian Universalists were, and certainly still are, holding up the inherent worth and dignity of all people. The idea still fills my cup and the chalice, the healing cup, that first sign of refuge to those escaping Nazi persecution is the symbol of radical inclusion that keeps me grounded in my faith.
Like Scott, when I first found Unitarian Universalism, I was also smitten and excited about what I had found. I recall becoming quite the UU evangelist on my Northeast Texas college campus. I printed out one-page sheets all about Unitarian Universalism, and I would keep them in my backpack and hand them to anyone who had any slight, remote, passing interest. (laughs) I, too, was drawn to our seven principles, especially that first principle of inherent worth and dignity of every person. At that time in my life, I had recently emerged out of a fundamentalist faith, And I recalled the harm to my spirit that had been done by many of the messages that I had received in that faith. I was so glad to have the openness and freedom and affirmation of the UU tradition. I reveled in my new awareness of my enoughness. I was being taught in my church that I was enough to God to my faith community, and increasingly to myself. What a beautiful gift. After college, I attended graduate school in Memphis, Tennessee, and it was there that I became very active in a small UU congregation. After I had been there for one year, their longtime minister retired. We then had a one-year interim minister, and then our new minister, fresh from seminary, arrived. He had a new way of doing things, and he challenged our congregation to try new things, too. It was then, at the ripe age of 25, that I became the chair of the Religious Education Committee in the midst of this ministry transition, and at the same time, I was wrestling with my own calling to ministry. This new minister was a mentor for me in both of these roles, helping me learn what UU faith community was all about. I remember one lunch when he asked me to begin examining my own privilege and to start thinking about Unitarian Universalism through a justice-making lens. It's likely that at the time, my eye roll was audible. Why do we have to do all that, I asked. Isn't it enough to be a spiritual community for seekers, helping to comfort and affirm them? After all, that is what I had needed when I found Unitarian Universalism. And several years later, I had not stretched much past that. The minister was kind and assured me that we would always have that as a part of our role but that it's never enough for a faith community, especially a UU one, to be insular and focused only on ourselves. Last week, we did a whole service here focusing on the UU Flaming Chalice, the history of the Unitarian Service Committee, or the USC, during World War II. I told the story of Martha and Wait Still Sharp the two figures who were much of the energy behind the earliest days of the USC and how their work in Czechoslovakia and later in Portugal helped to bring hundreds of people, including many, many children, to safety out of Nazi-occupied areas. 
It was during that time and that powerful and risky work that the Unitarian Service Committee hired an artist named Hans Deutsch to design a seal, a symbol, to put on their official documents, their signage, packages, and other important things. He designed the flaming chalice as the symbol that we now call our UU chalice today. But it took decades for the symbol to transform from the symbol of the Unitarian Service Committee to the symbol of the Unitarian Church, and then later to become the symbol of the Unitarian Universalist Association, having at that time been placed off-center in two interlocking rings to show the merger of the Unitarians with the Universalists. And then, even later, children began to make three-dimensional chalices in their Sunday school programs. And when the children and youth would lead services in the sanctuary, they would bring their chalices with them, which captured the imagination of the adult congregation, who then began lighting flaming chalices in their services to mark sacred time together. If you missed last week's service, you can find it on our YouTube channel and learn more about the incredible history of our flaming chalice symbol and the bravery of the people who originated it. But one thing that stands out about this story is that no one really knows why Hans Deutsch created the flaming chalice as the symbol for the Unitarian Service Committee. We know that he did, and we know what happened next, but we don't know why he did it. There are no written records except a letter from Charles Joy, who was the president of the Unitarian Service Committee to Boston, to the uh, Unitarian office there, and he noted that it indicated some resemblance to monastic symbols or the flaming lamps of the ancient and Greek, ancient Greek and Roman temples. He also notes some resemblance of the chalice to a cross, which at the time, in the early 1900s, Unitarianism was still a Christian denomination, and the sacrificial love symbolized by the cross was one of the inspirations for that life-saving work of the service committee. But other than that, we don't really know. We don't know why Hans Deutsch drew that symbol. But one idea is that he was inspired by a 15th century Catholic priest named Jan Hus. It's spelled J-A-N, Jan, H-U-S, Hus. He was born in 1370. He became a Catholic priest and then the dean and rector of Charles University in Prague, that same city where centuries later one of the largest Unitarian churches ever would flourish and where the Unitarian Service Committee would begin its work. At that time, over a century before Martin Luther famously translated the scriptures into German and kicked off the Protestant Reformation, Jan Hus also was translating the Bible into the common language in his homeland of Bohemia. And he also preached to the common concerns of the people in common language. Eventually, for this, Hus was excommunicated from the church. But he had amassed a large enough following that he continued to preach and teach. 
At that time, in Catholic Mass, the communion bread, or the host, was given by the priest to the people, but the chalice, the wine, was kept only to be consumed by the priest himself. The people were not deemed worthy enough to receive the wine. But Hus believed and taught that the bread and wine were symbolic, that they didn't actually transform into the body and blood of Christ, and so he insisted on sharing both elements, the bread and the wine, with everyone who was gathered at Mass. For this and for other heresies, Hus was arrested, tried, and after being found guilty, he was put to death by being burned at the stake. For Jan Hus's followers, who became known as Husites, this was a tragedy. The chalice which he gave to everyone, merged with the flame of his sacrifice, became the symbol of a movement throughout Bohemia and Eastern Europe. It was worn on cloaks and battle armor for centuries. Sadly, this was a time of lots of religious war, and the Hussite wars are no different. But the message of Jan Hus was reborn a century later when the Reformation pushed for many of the things that he taught. The national motto of Czechoslovakia as far back as World War I, and even now today the motto of the Czech Republic, is truth prevails, which it is said that Jan Hus shouted while he was being burned. He was known to have said during his life, seek the truth, hear the truth, learn the truth, love the truth, speak the truth, hold the truth and defend the truth until death. Now since this symbol, this chalice with a flame inside, was already something that had existed in Europe, it's highly possible and even likely that Hans Deutsch knew about the Hussites and the flaming chalice in that context when he designed the symbol for the Unitarian Service Committee. Okay, cool. So what, what does that have to do with us today? I love, I love a good history service, but what do we do with it? Last Sunday, I invited you to ponder what it must have felt like to be terrified, to worry about your own safety or your children's safety, and then to see the flaming chalice image of the Unitarian Service Committee. To imagine that symbol on paperwork that would grant your child safe passage to the United States or your own escape to a safe country. Today, I want us to ponder the symbol itself, as it is, a chalice, a cup, and a flame. If it has any reference at all to Jan Hus, and I think it does, that cup was something that was denied to the people, that he believed that they deserved, that all people deserved it, not only a few select people, and that the flame so warm and inviting, dancing in that cup, that it was actually the flame of sacrifice, a terrible, terrible sacrifice. 
but it was a risk that he willingly took to offer his faith to those on the margins, those that the powers that be said did not deserve it. The cup for everyone, the flame, a willing risk. Those of you that know me know that I love Unitarian Universalist history. I get really excited when I talk about it. And the reason is that if you follow Unitarian history all the way back from the year 325, it's kind of like a tree. It just branches off over and over again. When the church is going along this way, there's eventually some kind of schism, and those who are deemed heretics go this way, and the rest of the church continues along, and then there's another schism and another... Unitarians are basically the people who always, at every fork in the road, were the heretics. <laughs> and we weren't just the heretics because we liked to be anti-authoritarian, though that was probably part of it. We were the heretics because we were often on the leading edge of what it meant to be more open, more flexible, more welcoming in our theology than what the larger church was willing to be. This was the risk that our religious ancestors took over and over again to create and share a faith that was expansive, not limiting. And this is what they handed down to us, a Unitarian Universalism that is for everyone, a comfort and a gift and an affirmation for everyone, like the cup that Jan Hus believed that everyone deserved. Takia Amin, in the reading we heard earlier, says, quote, As a living tradition, I'm glad to be in a faith community that isn't closed. While our faith is rooted in centuries-old religious perspectives and practices, new interpretations of what it means to live out this tradition as people of color, as people on the margins, as people committed to global justice and increasingly complex circumstances, are emerging and being articulated in new and exciting ways. We are a faith, she says, that is both deeply rooted and reaching toward the future. As we ask ourselves what it means to be you, you in the world now, to bring justice now, to be bearers of the heavy weight of democratic consciousness now. The answers, multivalent and diverse, reside in our very lives. So we do well to bring our full selves to bear on this tradition." End quote. Our ancestors passed this faith from one generation to the next until today, it's ours. And we're not done. Along the way, there have been bumps in the road. There have been times that we have failed to live up to the gift that our ancestors gave us. But then, Another brave generation comes along and tries to keep us on that path toward creating ever more expansive faith, more open to the experiences and stories and lives of those who have been shut out. That's why it's not enough for us to do what I wanted to do when I was 24 and I rolled my eyes at my minister, wondering why we couldn't simply be a spiritual community for seekers affirming and comforting. We can be that, and we should be that, and I hope that we are that. And, and, 
We are also a spiritual community who should offer ourselves to those who have not yet found us, who might need us, who might find in Unitarian Universalism a life-saving faith, and yet they've never heard of us. Or, worse, they have heard of us, but they think we are only that place where white folks go, who listen to NPR and drive Priuses. It's funny, but it's not enough to only be welcoming to one kind of person. Many of us say, and I have said it too, that one of the reasons we love coming here is for the like-minded people. But the risk of like-mindedness is that it can be a comfort and a trap. It keeps us stuck in our sameness. We also need to reach out and offer ourselves to those who need us even those who will never join us. The chalice cup is for everyone, not just those who will eventually sign our membership book. Our UU tradition has been at the crossroads before, the place of schism. And it's possible that we are there again today as a faith tradition. This generation is facing the challenge within ourselves about our collective call to be a multicultural and anti-racist religious organization. Some people find this threatening to what they originally loved about Unitarian Universalism, and they want to stay in that like-minded, like-experienced place. But some people, like Takia Amin and I, find this a refreshing continuation of our religious historical heritage. It's an expansion that can only lead to more openness, more sharing, and more heretical, expansive love. Amin says, quote, what I know is that in Unitarian Universalism, we are better because of who we are together, and we are at our best when we hold the complexity that community provides as a reminder of the holy. I'm gonna say that again. We are better because of who we are together and at our best when we hold the complexity that community provides as a reminder of the holy. She continues, it's for these reasons that I do not hold back or hide myself or shrink as a member of this broadly diverse faith community and I encourage others to do the same. I don't want any of us to miss out on the beauty that each of us brings to this space. We take it as a given in our tradition that, yes, we're all different in our experiences of the holy, and because of that, we have the blessing of learning from each other as we wrestle with the tension of how to live in full, equitable, right relationship with each other." End quote. As we do this wrestling, it won't always be easy. Everyone won't always be happy. But it is a risk that we need to take, a risk to push ourselves beyond the safe boundaries of where we are to the place where we might become. We are the religious descendants of those who took risks, like Jan Hus, far greater than the one that we are currently facing. No one will be burned at the stake for the risk that we take to become anti-racist. Really, there's only good to come from it. 
May we let the flame of our chalice light our way forward. As we say each week when we extinguish the chalice flame here at our fellowship, may we carry its light of compassion and commitment to build a better world. To build a better world. May it be so. And amen.